You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary South. We exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission by seeing the lost redeemed, the redeemed matured, and the matured multiplied for the glory of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarysouth.com. I want you to grab your Bibles here this morning and uh, be turning to the book of Genesis. Uh, we find ourselves in the book of Genesis. We've been in this for uh, quite some time now, for the last uh, at least seven weeks, I believe. Um, we're going to be walking through the book of Genesis verse by verse, and, uh, and we're in this for the long haul. Uh, we're going to be taking some breaks from the book as we go, but uh, as we have landed here in the very first chapters, we're now in chapter two, and we're going to be looking at... Uh, the creation, we've already looked at the creation of man, we've looked at the creation of woman, and now we're going to be looking at the foundations of marriage here together uh, in chapter 2, verses 24 to 25. And so if you have a Bible, let's, let's turn there together. If you uh, don't have a Bible like Josh already mentioned, we want you to have God's Word. It is God's living and active Word, the Word that by God's Spirit, He wrote through men, He wrote sufficiently and uh, perfectly for us to understand who he is as he speaks to us through his word by his spirit here uh, this morning. And so as we uh, get the privilege of peeking into the foundations of marriage, as last week we sought to answer the question, what is woman? This week we're going to seek to answer the question, what is marriage? What is the meaning of marriage according to the one who created it? And so in verses 24 to 25 of chapter uh, 2, we read this. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's go to the Lord for his help this morning. Uh, Our Father, we come to you covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. We come to you filled by your Holy Spirit, and we come to you uh, seeking what you have for us this morning so that we would honor and we would praise and we would worship you all the more. As we turn to your word this morning and we hear from you, uh, as we ask you the question, what is marriage, Uh, we know that you are the one who created it, so therefore you are the one who defines it. And as we are living in troubled days of confusion to this regard of what uh, biblical marriage is, what true marriage is, we seek your help here this morning. Be with us as we seek your face. Open our hearts to understand. Um, open our eyes to see the glory of Christ. Open our ears to hear the word that you have for us uh, and that you would place it upon our hearts and that you would bring the transformation that you desire for your people as you are completing the bride, as you are growing us in sanctification for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. So chapter 2, verses 24 to 25. As we see a world around us seeking to redefine marriage, to rework marriage, to even increasingly reject uh, true marriage altogether, the outlook of marriage today is not looking so good. Right? In fact, over the last 50 years, uh, marriage rates across our country in Canada have dropped by close to 50%. Divorce rates have doubled Uh, to over 50% of marriages now. Uh, People are putting off marriage to much later in life. Uh, For example, in 1970, the average um, er, uh, age of marriage for a woman was 23 years of age. Uh, But as of 2008, really the last time that 
Canada really records and puts out these numbers. As of 2008, that number has now crested to over 30 years of age. Uh, today in the UK, the average age of marriage for a woman is 35 years old, and in Sweden, it is 38. And then it's also just more and more common for people to cohabitate uh, together, this kind of common law understanding, uh, wanting to forget the official ceremony, let's just live together as uh, a married couple. And then along with that, like I mentioned, you see all of this confusion and this marital distortion going on in the world. We have the influence of the LGBTQ plus culture out there. The world is seemingly in trouble in the regard of what marriage truly is. By observation of the world, friends, marriage is not looking so great. Now as Christians and within the church, marriage is doing better, that's for sure. Dr. Brad Wilcox of the National Marriage Project says, active conservative pro uh, Protestants, and that's very important to understand, active conservative Protestants who attend church regularly are actually 35% less likely to divorce than those who have no religious preferences. His numbers also show that 72% of active conservative Protestants stay married to their first spouse. But yet the question still remains, even in light of that, what about the other 30% of the marriages that aren't making it? What's going on there? You know, in the church that I grew up in, by the time I graduated, many of the marriages that I once looked up to, including the marriage of my own parents, sadly dissolved in divorce. And so it seems, as much as it is an issue in the world, the church has much work to do in this regard when it comes to marriage as well. Even in the short history of our church here, there have been marital challenges going on. And so what are we going to do about it? And where do we turn? Do we just accept these hard facts and chalk it up as just living in a fallen world? Or do we as Christians do something about it? Well, if so, what do we do? Where do we turn? Do we bring in the world experts, right, the worldly experts to try to help us figure all of this out? Do we turn to the therapists? Do we turn to the psychologists to label and decipher and give us some kind of behavior modification, some kind of a trick or a tip to, to help uh, make the marriage work? Do we broaden our, our view outside of the confines of what God has described as holy matrimony that he's described from the very beginning? Or do we turn back to the very beginning? Do we turn back to the, the original design, the measuring rod for all of faith and life? Do we turn back to the word of God and measure our marriages against the word of God or maybe our soon-to-be marriages against the word of God to see what he has revealed and what he has modeled and what he has patterned for us? Now, to be sure, we won't be able to address every issue and nuance of, of marriage, maybe something that you're facing today in your marriage. We don't have the time for all of that here this morning. But what we're going to see here on this Sunday, as we are currently planted in this book of Genesis here, we're going to see four biblical foundations for us regarding marriage. We're going to see four foundations that we can plant ourselves on because God has revealed insight into what marriage is to look like even before the fall, right after he created Adam, right after he created Eve. And those, and those foundations are, are solid foundations for us to build ourselves upon. 
Now, from the very beginning, God has represented marriage as covenant. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that today, what that means. And uh, the argument is going to be this, that to get the best out of your marriage and to glorify God the most through your marriage, you need to build yourself and build your marriage upon the covenant of loyalty, a covenant of unity, a covenant of fidelity, and covenant reality. And so let's, we're going to start here with the first one here this morning, which is covenant loyalty. And we find that here in verse 24, that marriage is about leaving. Marriage is about leaving. In verse 24, we see here that the, the, the word of God says, therefore, a man shall leave. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother. Now, as we see the word therefore in scripture, what do we do with a therefore? Right? We always ask, what is the therefore, therefore, right? It means that we need to be looking back to what comes right before. We need to look back to the teaching before, the context before, the situation before, in order to understand how the author wants us to respond. And so the therefore that we see here is referring back to both the creation of man from the dust, right? And that whole reality that it's not good for him to be alone, Right, that because God knew that it wasn't good for Adam to be alone, he then he then created Eve. Right, remember he put Adam to sleep, and he and he opens up his side, and he takes out a rib, and uh, he creates the woman from that rib, and then God brings his bride to Adam. Right, and this is bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, one in the same, yet so beautifully different. Just as we learned last week. Right, he, he made a completing companion for him. He made a complimentary helper for him. And he made a celebrated treasure for him. Therefore, because of all of that, therefore a man, as we see in the text today, shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Now we'll get to the holding fast part here next, but let's just ponder this word, this imperative that the man is to leave his father and mother. Does this mean that the pattern set forth for Adam and all of the men that come after him are to now physically leave their homes, leave their parents in order to fully embrace biblical marriage? Does this mean that when the, when the right girl comes along, that man is to literally pack up his bags, load up the camels, and physically remove himself from his parents' presence? Well, I, I can see how we might even think that because that's, that's somewhat of a normal practice today. When Kim and I got married, we were both uh, coming from our parents' homes. We lived in our parents' homes until the day that we got married. And then when we got married, from that day forward, we were on our own. I think that's a more normal practice today for sure, you know, especially in our Western culture. But as we remember that the Bible was first written directly to a specific people at a specific time in a specific context, would this have been their normal practice? Would this have been the Jewish-Israelite practice, right? Remember, Moses is writing this in the Exodus, right? God has given him the revelation, and he is writing this. Would this have been their practice back then? Well, no, it actually wasn't. No, back then, the normative practice of marriage for the Jews was for the wife to leave her home 
and for the young groom to bring his bride to his parents' home or onto his parents' land or, or somewhere very close to his parents so that he could continue in his life within their business or within their agricultural uh, projects or whatever they were doing together, and he would eventually inherit it. The, the normal practice was that he would bring the wife to his parents, around his parents. Uh, we see this in the life of Noah and his sons after the flood, right? As, as Noah's planting a vineyard, his sons and, and their wives are all with him. We also see uh, in the story of Abraham, right? He, what does he do? He goes in, and, and finds a wife for his son. And as Rebecca then leaves her family to join Isaac, right? They don't run off to the city to start their life together. No, they remain with the family. Right? This was a normal practice back then. And it would have been a, a normal practice for the first audience who was hearing this. So it can't, in this moment, literally mean that the man must physically leave his family. Therefore, it has to mean something else. And what it, what it means is something more metaphoric than it is literal. That this leaving that God is talking about here is more about a leaving of priorities. It's actually more about loyalty, Right, that as a man leaves his father and his mother, it's about a transfer of loyalties. That although up to this point, the man's ultimate honor and priority was to be for his parents and their covenant, now that he has a wife, his new ultimate priority above all things, including that of his parents, is the new family unit he is about to begin in. This is his new obligation to his new wife. This now has higher precedence than it does his parents' covenant that he was a part of before. He is now to live closely with her, prioritizing her. And what it means when it comes right down to it is that his marriage is to come first. As he looks through his list of priorities in life, his number one devotion, yes, is to God, but his next priority in his list of priorities is his relationship to his wife. In fact, the word leave here can also mean in a stronger sense to forsake in the sense that he comes out from under his obligation to his parents' covenant, kind of like he forsakes their covenant in order to come under his new covenant as a family. And he can't hold the same loyalty for both. Friends, there's nothing more destructive in a marriage than when you get your priorities wrong. There's nothing more destructive than when the priorities of your life in reference to your marriage gets out of order. Right? This happens when the priority of work gets placed first. Or when the priority of children gets placed first above your marriage. And yes, it even still happens when you have not created enough decent separation between you and your parents, right? Once you've become married. Now don't hear me wrong. Your parents are an absolute blessing in your life. Yes, they have cared for you like nobody else. Yes, they have loved you like nobody else. Yes, they have provided for you and given you so much direction and wisdom of how you ought to live your life. But if you enter your marriage without a decent amount of separation from their authority, you're gonna find yourself in trouble. It's not gonna be easy. 
For example, let's say that Sally marries Bobby. Hopefully there's no Sally's or Bobby's here. And they're just so in love, right? They just cannot get enough of each other. But then as their marriage continues, what Bobby is finding out is that as he tries to make, make decisions for him and his wife, as he tries to lead Sally, instead of Sally trusting him and following him, instead what he's finding out is that she's always running to mom and dad. Right? She's always questioning Bobby's ideas. And she says to him, well, that's not the way my dad would do it. And then even worse, as she believes already that her parents' way is the only way, her parents may even be telling her, well, Bobby's doing everything wrong, right? Bobby doesn't know what he's doing. And then they start to meddle and to interfere with how she is to live their life, how they are to live their life, how they are to spend their money, how they are to raise their kids. And this can also happen vice versa, right? Right, as some of us husbands can be mama's boys, right? Right, that's not the way my mom did it or... That's not the way my mom cooked that meal, right? No, friends, what the Lord is giving us here in this leaving language is godly wisdom. In fact, it's a godly command that when it comes to marriage, the priority is now the marriage, not the parents, not anything else. That even though, yes, your obligation, right, in the fourth commandment is to honor your father and your mother as the Lord God commanded you, But if honoring them comes before honoring your wife or your husband, it is not going to go well for you. No, friends, there is a shifting of loyalty that happens in biblical marriage. As you have now come together in marriage and you've covenanted before the Lord to love and to cherish your wife from this day forward, besides the Lord, she is number one in your life. Right? She's number one. Your parents are not number one. Right? Your work is not number one. Your career is not number one. Your hobbies are not number one. Your interests, your health, your comfort, your delights are not number one. And friends, the biggest thing that's not number one is you. She is number one. Or he is number one, right? Number one is not your children. Right? As we're a small church with lots of little kids... Friends, we need to get a hold of this right now. Although raising kids is so critically important, and even as it's so all-consuming, if we forget to prioritize our marriages first, we're not listening to God's good design for us. No, when the kids come first, we're getting our priorities backwards. The reason many marriages fizzle out as soon as the kids grow up and leave home is because your life wasn't about each other, it was about them. So by way of application here, ask yourselves, and better yet, husbands and wives later ask each other about the ways that we might be prioritizing other things over our marriage. And then talk about how you're going to get your marriage back on top, back on top of the priority list. And then, therefore, how you're going to protect that priority. And just just by way of a simple application here, marriages, if you haven't had a special night out together, as husband and wife, a date together in in quite some time, what is that saying about your priority in your marriage? 
Like maybe even the concept of, of having a special time going out and, and treasuring your wife or your husband, maybe that's foreign to you. And maybe you think that date nights or date lunches or, or just a one-on-one, undistracted time together is just not that important. Well, friends, if that's you, you are missing out. You're truly missing out. No, it's not good that man is alone. No, God created you for each other as the closest relationship that you can have apart from your relationship with God himself. And this is going to lead to the second foundation that we need to build our marriages upon, and that is the foundation of covenant unity. Friends, marriage is about clinging. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Friends, marriage is about clinging. Friends, the word, the word hold fast here is the Hebrew word, debak, and it literally means to stick. Right? It's like Lionel Rich's you know, famous song, I'm stuck on you, right? It's, it's sticking. Marriage is sticky. Marriage is a clingy thing. And friends, that is good. That is right. That's how God designed it to be. That's the way it's supposed to be. Right? You leave your formal loyalties behind and your priorities that you had before, and you now cling and stick together as one for as long as you live. Now, as I also like the translation, hold fast here in the English Standard Version, Hold fast speaks of an urgency in this, right? That it wasn't good for Adam to be alone, right? Even in the perfection of the garden, and then even so more after the fall, when everything seems to fall apart, holding fast is going to be so crucial for you. You're going to need your other half to hold on to when the storms of life come. Right, that as, sin, as this sinful world that we live in is going to throw all kinds of hard things and heartache and suffering at us, you don't have to do it alone. No, you've got the Lord, and by his grace, you've got each other to hold fast to. Right, that's in the joys and in the sorrows. You're going to have somebody with you who can faithfully point you to Christ when you're doubting. You're going to have somebody with you to encourage you in the gospel, in your despair. You're going to have somebody with you who's going to speak the truth in love to you in your moments of unbelief. Friends, the beauty that we have in the unity of our marriages is unity and strength that you cannot experience when you're all alone. In fact, Ecclesiastes 4, 9 to 10 says, two are better than one. Because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Friends, God didn't give you an enemy in your spouse. God gave you a lifelong ally to cling to. In fact, he gave you a one flesh ally. As the text says here, and and they shall become one flesh, as God made Eve out of Adam's rib, and as Adam exclaimed, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, the image-bearing plan of God is to unite man and woman together through a bond of both physical and spiritual union. 
As Jesus himself quotes this text in the Gospel of Mark, right? He's teaching against divorce. He then expounds upon this text and says, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh, Mark 10, 8. In the physical and spiritual union you have together in marriage, you're not just experiencing a momentary joy. No, you're expressing the oneness that you have together. You're expressing the beauty of how God created you to become one together, both physically and spiritually. And this reflects the intimacy and unity of who God is. Friends, this becoming one flesh physically right, quite literally, in the act of intimacy is a fostering of the spiritual bond you have with your spouse, right? Yes, God designed the sexual union for Adam and Eve for the purpose of being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth. We've already studied that, but this is also an ongoing, beautiful expression of the closeness and the unity that we are to experience between one man and one woman in regular, consistent joy for life. It's an experience that that we get to enjoy, which teaches us about the closeness that God has within himself as well. Friends, if intimacy is an issue, If intimacy is not regular, if it is not consistent, it is going to be a challenge for you to feel that closeness that you are to have as a wife and a husband. Friends, when you find the one and you get married, intimacy plays a big role in your unity together. In fact, marriage within the Jewish culture wasn't deemed to be complete until that covenant was ratified through sexual consummation. Right, as Rebecca is brought to Isaac, Genesis 24, 67 says, then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah's mother and took Rebecca. And she became his wife and he loved her. Friends, where there is marriage, there needs to be intimacy. It's an act of an ongoing reminder and renewal of that marital covenant that you have together. In fact, the Bible teaches that intimacy is not an option. It's it's a necessity. Paul talks about this in the book of Corinthians. The Corinthians was a troubled church. They had confused ideas of, of sexuality. And he says to them in 1 Corinthians 7, 3 to 5, he says, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And then he says this, he says, do not deprive one another, except perhaps for agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come back together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, if you are depriving one another, friends, there better be a whole lot of praying going on, which is probably not the case, right? No, intimacy can be a challenge. It can be a challenge to get it right. You can get yourselves into a slump. You can get yourselves into a bad place, for sure. But the way back is remembering 
that it's not good to be alone. God gave you each other by his grace and mercy. He gave you each other and only each other to experience and express the oneness and the unity through this beautiful act of covenant love. The way back to to God-glorifying intimacy is repentance. If it's not happening, it is sin. You need to repent. You need to confess this to one another. And then for the husband, the way back is to, to love his wife as Christ loved the church. Right? To sacrifice himself for her. Even in intimacy. It's not about you in that moment. It's about her. Love her. Seek her. Like woo her. Understand her. Know her. And then wives as well. As difficult as it may have been or as hard as it has been a struggle, the way back to forgiveness and grace is humility. Right? Respond to his gentle shepherding leading in this direction by willingly following, willingly submitting. And again, it's not about you in that moment. It's about each other. You are his. He is yours. There may have to be some really honest conversations here, some, some serious healing that needs to take place in your life. But as you take these steps, just give yourself freely to one another. Right? Commit to one another. Celebrate your bond together. Give yourself with regularity and consistency to foster that unity. Friends, the covenant bond you have is only going to grow stronger And you're only going to experience a closer connection and the closest connection that you can experience this side of heaven through that one flesh togetherness. And it's a taste of the closeness and unity found in God himself. And friends, this unity that God gifts in marriage is to be permanent. It's to stick. It's to cling until the end. As Jesus refers to this text, as he's answering questions about divorce in Matthew 19.4, He answered, he says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. And then he says this, he says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. As God has joined you, separation is not the answer. As God has joined you, divorce is not the answer. No, the answer is confession, repentance, reconciliation, and restoration. The answer is the gospel. We don't quickly pull the divorce parachute. Now, without us getting too derailed here, yes, there seems to be an allowance for divorce in Matthew 5.32 and 19.10 when it comes to marital unfaithfulness. The principle of Scripture would also call us to protect and to vent, to defend against abuse and abandonment for sure. But the, the, the separation and divorce reality, again, is not the design of God. It's not an option of God. We don't approach marriage with this, well, if it's not going to work out, then I'll just get a divorce. That is not the option given to God. No, God, God's plans for man and woman is one man, 
one woman, one marriage for one life. And it's a clingy, sticky, one flesh union for life. We don't get to pull the separation trigger quickly. No, friends, we pull the gospel trigger. We, we allow the gospel to work. Friends, marriage is a beautiful thing. But marriage at times can be really hard, especially if you're not fostering your marriage. The more that you foster it, the better it's going to be for those hard times. The stickier you're going to be stuck to each other for the hard times. And men in this room, I'm going to ask you to lead in this area. Don't be passive. Lead your wife in this. Lead her gently. Lead her with grace. And wives, follow his lead. John Piper says in his book on marriage, he said, it's, it's not love that keeps the covenant. It's the covenant that keeps the love. Covenant unity. So marriage is about clinging, which then leads to the next point, that marriage is also about covenant fidelity. Marriage is about keeping. Right? So marriage is about leaving, clinging, and keeping. Verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So if you think about the context of those who are hearing this for the first time, right, the Israelites with Moses in the wilderness, in the Jewish culture, nakedness and, and being unashamed would be a really shocking reality for them to try to get their minds around. Moses even mentioning nakedness in the Jewish culture would have made them uncomfortable. The Jewish culture at that time was obsessed with being covered up with layers of clothing. Men covered their whole bodies with an inner tunic and an outer tunic, covering all of their skin except their feet and their head. And then when the women dressed, they even dressed more modest than the men. They would have dressed somewhat the same, but also wearing a head covering at that time. Friends, this is not like our culture today in the West, this culture that freely flaunts the flesh in public space. No, to them, nakedness was immodest. Nakedness was irreverent. It was sinful. It was shameful. But yet we see here in the explanation of God is the ideal, perfect plan of God. And his plan before the fall was this pure, naked innocence. Now, as we know what's going to happen in chapter 3, we know that as Adam and Eve eat of the fruit, the text says in chapter 3, verse 7, after they ate the fruit, it said, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, right? They covered themselves up. As they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, now they had a knowledge of sin. Before that, they had no knowledge of evil. They had no sinful thoughts. They didn't know that nakedness could be seen in a, in a sinful way. But now, all of a sudden, as they ate of the fruit and depravity now entered their hearts and their minds and their thoughts, all of a sudden, they look at each other differently. They look at each other in a lowly, ungodly way to the point that they are ashamed. And so they cover themselves up. Friends, this was not God's intention for us. This was our doing. 
right? Humanity chose to sin, and therefore we stained and tainted what was meant to be pure and lovely and innocent as God designed it to be. Naked, meaning that they were exposed fully to each other. They were not ashamed of anything, revealing that there was nothing between them. There was nothing sinful between them. It was just pure, joyful, honest, open, vulnerability, no need to cover up, nothing hiding, just sexually pure, innocent bliss. Friends, this is the ideal marriage. Living openly, living honestly, living living freely without secrets, no infidelity, no covering anything up. This was the first marriage that in all of its purity was designed to last forever. But again, we know what happens in chapter three, right? Sin and death and shame comes to play and the repercussions are felt. The new norm now is to cover the shame. Nakedness needs to be concealed as the marital relationship would now become hard and and as banishment was gonna come from the garden, As marriage was still designed to move forward, it now moved forward with chains of depravity and decay and degeneration. So friends, as much as the Bible celebrates the goodness of marriage, the Bible is also so honest as it shares about the troubles of marriage as well. That the man and woman are now gonna have a tendency to struggle with each other that it was no longer this ease in the innocence that they once had in the garden. And that as you go on to study the marriages in the Bible, loyalty, unity, and fidelity was going to be broken. The covenant of marriage was going to be twisted. It was going to be stained as temptation and sexual immorality saturates the pages of Scripture. I mean, just study the marriages of the Bible. See the struggle. See the shame. The Bible doesn't hide this stuff. But as well, the Bible doesn't condone these things. No, that's why the Bible condemns adultery. The Bible condemns fornication. The Bible condemns sexual immorality in all of its forms. It condemns everything outside of the ideal picture of marriage before the fall. Right? That one man, one woman, one marriage for one life together. Anything outside of that is sin. Because anything outside of that is taking what was meant to be holy, what was monogamous, what was godly, and making it unholy. No, friends, as marriage is to last until the end, the way of the marriage, even after the fall, is fidelity. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 15 to 18, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? And then he quotes Genesis 2.24. For as it is written, he says, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And then he says so boldly, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Friends, as the church is now the body of Christ, we are one flesh with him. 
and this is the only acceptable and encouraged expression of that union, is now within the bonds of biblical marriage. We're called to flee sexual immorality, Jesus says. Flee the shame. And so you young guys here, even if you're not married yet, start honoring your marriage now. Right? Kill those avenues that are taking you to shame. Prepare yourself for your marriage right now. Begin to commit to the wife that you're going to have, to the bond that you're going to be given. Start living it right now. And older guys, I mean the rest of us, married guys, we're not out of the scope either. Repent of our lust. Turn away from the temptations of this world. Flee the temptation, Paul says. And foster what is good, right? As the wisdom of God says in Proverbs. Guys, go back and read Proverbs chapter 5 this week. Proverbs 5.15, drink water from your own cistern. Flowing water from your own well. Right, that's your wife alone. Proverbs 5.18, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. And then he goes on to say, be intoxicated in her love. As much as we can, guys, set the bar of intimate fulfillment through your wife alone. That's the closest that you're going to come to that relationship that was designed from the beginning. And women, this is for you as well. Guard your heart from being tempted away. Be careful with what you see and what you hear and what you expose yourself to. Be careful with what your heart desires in those moments of weakness. Don't, don't fall for the hallmark portrayal of love and romance. And definitely don't give yourself to the harlequin definition of love. If you want to read about romance, read the Song of Solomon. Read godly romance. The kind of love and intimacy that God celebrates unashamed, beautiful romance to be found within your one flesh covenant alone. Friends, the reality is, is that God designed it to be very good and it is an unashamed good. But we broke it. We disobeyed. We ate the fruit. We brought the shame. We tried to cover it all up. And then we even blamed each other and we blamed God. But friends, if we want to keep our marriages strong, right, we need more than romance. We need more than love. We even need more than each other. We need to hold fast to the gospel. If you want to live as close as you can to that original, unashamed design, friends, we have to be honest with our problems. We have to be honest with our sin. And we have to also realize that we need something greater. Which leads to the final point. That if we want to get the best out of our marriage, if we want to glorify God the most through our marriage, <coughs> we're going to have to build our marriages on the foundation of covenant reality. That marriage is about proclaiming. Friends, the most important thing we need to realize in our marriages is that our marriages are not ultimately realized in us. No, the purpose of marriage is ultimately realized in Christ. Marriage is ultimately about proclaiming his glory, the glory of God that is 
perfectly fulfilled through the bridegroom of Christ and his church. This is what I mean by covenant reality, realized in that. That the covenant that you make in your marriage, the vows that you make, the promises that you promise to keep is not ultimately realized in you, but it's realized in Christ. The most important thing we have to know and embrace and to believe in our marriages today is that marriage is not ultimately about us. It's about Christ. It's about the gospel. That's why as Paul quotes this text in his letter to the Ephesians, he says this. He says in Ephesians 5, 31, 32, he says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says so profoundly, the mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. A man leaves his parents, and he marries a woman. They become one flesh to say something so much more than just marriage. It proclaims the glory of the gospel. Marriage refers to Christ and his church. Right? As we've been using that word covenant throughout the sermon today, covenant loyalty, covenant unity, covenant fidelity, and now covenant reality, a covenant in the scriptures is to be a lifelong, blood-spilling commitment between two people. And what we see in the scriptures is that God makes a holy permanent covenant with his people from the very beginning. And he promises to his people that he is going to be loyal, that he is going to be uh, the promised uh, unification as we are united with him. He is the one who keeps his promises to the end. And he is the one who is going to be the one full of fidelity for that covenant relationship. As we've been reading in chapter 2, we've, we've noticed that God has revealed his personal saving covenant name, right? Yahweh Elohim. That's the, the covenant-keeping name of God. And so throughout the rest of Scripture, he is going to live out his covenant perfectly, right? When it comes to his people, when it comes to us, just like Adam and Eve, we are prone to sin. We are prone to breaking our part of the covenant. That is our story over and over again through the pages of Scripture, or as you look upon your life, you see how you've broken it over and over and over again. But friends, as marriage is a covenant given by God for each other before him, the God of the Bible is the ultimate covenant keeper. As we continually break the covenant, he is always faithfully keeping it, right? What he promises, he keeps. He keeps his promises despite our waywardness, right? When it came to the people of Israel, God even referred to himself as Israel's husband. Isaiah 54, 5, for your maker, right, your creator is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, Yahweh, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. Even Israel would give herself to sin. She would break her covenant in so many adulterous ways, but yet the husband of Israel, God himself, continually pursued her. Isaiah 62.4 gives us insight here. To the people of Israel, you shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord 
delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Friends, what we experience in marriage is an ongoing rehearsal and remembrance of God's pure faithfulness to his people. And it's also a rehearsal of what is to come. As Paul is talking about this profound mystery, as he's saying that it refers to Christ and the church, what he is saying that, as since from the beginning, as men and women have been marrying, and how from the very beginning, God himself was the faithful covenant-keeping husband, the whole picture, friends, of marriage from the very beginning has been pointing forward. And it has been anticipating fulfillment and completement and fullness in one and only one perfect husband, the bridegroom himself, Jesus Christ. Just as John the Baptist so perfectly proclaimed about Christ, he said, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. And then Jesus himself referred to himself as the bridegroom in Matthew 9, 15, saying, and Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with him? He's referring to himself. Friends, the ultimate perfect covenant-keeping bridegroom, the ultimate husband of God's people, is the very Son of God, God himself, who came to earth to pursue and save his bride, to save his church. This is the mystery of your marriage. This is the beauty of your marriage. This is the ultimate purpose of your marriage. In fact, Jesus goes on to say that there's going to be no giving or taking of marriage in the resurrection. It's all meant to point forward to the truth of the gospel. Marriage is a temporary, beautiful reality pointing forward to the most beautiful reality of eternity. That Jesus himself would leave his father that he would leave his heavenly home, that he would come down and he would lower himself to our level in order to do what? To pursue his bride, to pursue his church, that he would come and he would cling to his people, that he would hold fast to his church, and that he would put us first by laying down his life so willingly for us in order to save and to sanctify his bride, right? That in his sacrificial death and then in his wondrous resurrection, he would become one flesh with his church, one body, right? Many members, Christ as our head, but we as his body. That even though you and I struggle with the shame of our sin, he took our shame upon himself as he faithfully hung naked and exposed on a cross for us, Friends, Jesus is the ultimate faithful husband. He is the faithful husband that the world has been waiting for. He is the faithful husband that the bride has been waiting for. That if we are faithless, he remains what? He remains faithful, right? As we are one flesh with him right now, spiritually, one day, very soon, he has promised that he is going to return for his bride. He is going to take us home. And this will be the greatest marriage supper that we can't even imagine. Where we will all be gathered together with him. 
and to rejoice in him as we already read in Revelation 19, 6-9, where it says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Friends, these are the true words of God. Blessed are you if you are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that's the question. Are you a part of the bride of Christ? Have you turned from your sin and trusted in him alone for salvation? Have you been brought into the the church We're not just talking about church on Sundays gathering together. We're not just about a building. We're talking about the bride of Christ. Those he is saving, those he is sanctifying as the perfect husband, washing his bride with the word of Christ and saving and sanctifying her. That's what marriage is all about. Again, marriage is about leaving. It's about clinging. It's about keeping. It's about proclaiming. Christ was the one who was loyal. Christ was is the one who unified. Christ is the one who never forsakes us, never leaves us. And Christ is our covenant reality. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that even in the very first pages of Scripture, your word is pointing forward, your word is pregnant with the promise of a perfect covenant-keeping husband to come. And we are so thankful that today we get to look back and to see it so perfectly through the pages of Scripture and know that the perfect husband, the perfect covenant-keeping husband for the bride is the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. And it is him that we worship. We are so thankful that you have given us marriage, that you have given us this design of marriage And yes, we look to the original design and we seek to fashion ourselves after that. And we know that as we do that, by your grace, by your spirit, it will only be for our good. But let us never forget always to see that the mystery of all of this points forward to resolution in Jesus Christ alone. We love you, God. We pray for the marriages of our church We know that marriages have their ups and downs, their challenges, their joys. We know that some are not married. We know that some are single. We know that some want to be married. We we know that some have also experienced separation. Some have experienced divorce. But let us always remember that the solution is your gospel. Your solution is ultimately that Jesus has come for the bride. And Jesus is coming back to take his bride home. We thank you in the name of Christ. Amen.